anybody there? It seems I'm all alone again. Does anybody care? This planet's empty. I see no signs of life. Please don't tell me that the human race did not survive. There are no people in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Hey everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome. It is Friday, May 19th, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress for all the details. You can help out the show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. And leave a comment to let other folks know why you like the show. Little things like this help other people find the show. And we cannot let Paul Martino, Moms for Liberty, and their oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly rooted community pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. And now with the PA primaries done... As we're looking forward to the fall elections, municipal elections with school boards at stake. Um, well, it's time to get that little pack to work, don't you think? Yep, I think so. That's what we're working on this summer. But on today's show, we've got a right-wing takeover of a Colorado school board is a case study in what's happening nationwide. The Woodland Park School Board was taken over by conservatives in 2021, and they moved quickly to radically transform the district learning from the tactics of Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, and bolstered by big money fueling Christian nationalist curricular changes. Yes, you guys uh, listening to Bucks County, yeah, it's already ringing some bells, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, but there's a little variance on this. It's worth kind of spending a little bit of time with. These kind of, the, the curricular changes were the so-called American birthright curricular standards. They are passed by the Woodland Park School Board and are similar to Hillsdale College's K-12 curriculum, but they also target state standards as well as local district ones. This is something I got a feeling we need to be watching for moving forward. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signs a bill that dramatically limits transgender medical treatments and restricts pronouns in schools and forces people to use bathrooms corresponding to their birth sex. Looks like he's going all in on the kind of, uh, you know, the uh, genital campaign, apparently. And New York City is sinking. Yep. Due to the massive weight of its skyscrapers. And now studies are now showing that it will only exacerbate the effects of climate change. And what blew my mind in reading this piece um, uh, about New York City sinking. Since 1950s, the sea level has risen around New York City already by nine inches. Nine inches. Mark one. 
It's a PA-related news. Yes, there's big PA primaries this week, and Sherelle Parker wins the hotly contested and closely watched race for Philadelphia's next mayor. One of Parker's campaign pledges was to hire more cops in the midst of a wave of violence in the city. Now, she is now set to become Philly's first black woman mayor. Now, the most progressive candidate in the race, Helen Jim, came in third. Jim's campaign was quick to offer congratulations and support for Parker. She pledged to continue to build grassroots power. The other side of the Commonwealth, Sarah Inamorado, wins big in the Democratic primary for Allegheny County Executive. Much of Inamorado's win is rooted in the work that she and other members of the progressive community in the county have done to build strong progressive movement. And the Pittsburgh area continues to build a model of deep-rooted progressive organizing. And as The Intercept reported, the results in Tuesday's primary were a mixed bag for progressives, in Pennsylvania at least. The Pittsburgh area seeing progressive gains while Philadelphia showing stronger preference for more moderate Democratic Party machine platforms. Get into that a little bit. Democrats will remain will maintain control of the Pennsylvania House following Heather Boyd's win in Tuesday's special election to fill the empty seat in the 163rd district that's down in Delco. There were some promising signs in the uh, Penridge and Central Bucks school board races. Uh, both of those races showed signs that some Republicans may be supporting Democratic candidates uh, after a few years of right-wing extremism on their boards. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that promise or that possibility, but I'm going to temper some of those expectations a little bit. Um, um, and you can tell me whether you agree with me or not, <laughs> as do I. All right. Uh, yes, Dad, but Central Bucks, you know, still in the book banning business as the school board orders the removal of gender queer and ban this book from their library shelves. Again, we're going to see more of this as we hit and run up to number. And for more PA Progressive Talk, tune in the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Head on over to the RickSmithShow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast. Rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter and at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't heard, The Signal is a new podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by... This guy, yours truly. Twice a month, the signal will shine a light on the right-wing extremist current streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community towards calmer, saner, progressive roots. Just head on over to the buckscountybeacon.podbean.com, or you can pick that podcast up wherever you get your podcasts. And for all you gamers out there, the Game In, two ends. the Game In is a Quicker Town-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts when they get A's in their report card. Still got time before the end of the school year. Those last report cards are coming in. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In. Got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a shout-out goes to our intro um, goes out to <laughs> Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff and follow him on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Day Man. Two ends at Song of Day Man on Twitter. 
And at Out to Coop Live, uh, we're going to have a little bit of a change on Monday. Um, I'm going to probably do a morning show on Monday. Uh, details on the time uh, will come out. And the focus is going to be a little bit more kind of digging into some of the school board stuff, um, looking at some of the results of the primaries, looking back on the last um, school board meeting where uh, – where things broke down, people got shut down, um, and uh, uh, at the Penridge School Board meeting. So we're going to kind of dig in a little bit at that and take a little bit of a closer look at what's happening at uh, what's just been happening at Central Bucks. Um, so instead of taking up the entire day today, we're going to do a special on Monday, um, focusing it again on the school boards. We'll have some sound clips and that kind of stuff um, so we can unpack um, some things. Um, also, I'm really happy to, uh, to say that, you know, people seem to be digging me uh, clipping up the uh, Penridge School Board meeting and uh, with kind of clips of uh, comment and kind of key moments. Um, so thank you for all the feedback. I really appreciate it. Know that it's worthwhile. So I'm going to try to keep on continue doing that um, there. I just just want to let everybody know I had a little bit of a this, this weird tech, uh, technical glitch. I think it was just it seems to be working now. Uh, There's a little technical glitch uh, where I wasn't able to um, pull the clips um, for the second part of the meeting, uh, if you recall, I parted uh, this last week's meeting. I uh, posted clips from the first part of the meeting, and I wanted to get back to some of the, um, the teacher comments and some of the stuff that was said at the end. But for some reason, it wasn't allowing me to do this. Um, I didn't know if it was a setting that got messed up in, um, or if they blocked it somehow in there. But it turns out it was on my end. Um, so I apologize for that. I had some requests for some particular clips, which I will get up. Um, when I have a little time to go back and do that in the next couple of days. So I uh, just wanted to give everybody a heads up and thank you. Um, yeah, great, glad, glad you like them, Ross. Uh, I'll keep keep on doing that. Look, everybody, if we want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punch's homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, I hope that you are all recovering from the uh, uh, Tuesday's primary. Um, I had a whirlwind, I'm telling you, uh, the end of the week. If you recall, last Monday, well, for, well, you can go back even a little bit further than that. So the uh, the previous week, not last week, but the week before, was my uh, final week of uh, the semester where all my kind of paper grading and papers come in and that kind of stuff. Um, so I was in the midst of kind of like whirlwind grading. Um, and I was determined to get it done relatively early. So I was like up late on like Friday and Saturday and then kind of have to deal with a bunch of you know, kind of stragglers and kind of like issues that were kind of coming up at the last minute. Um, but that took me into um, it, like all through through Monday. But also on Monday, we had two shows on Out to Coop Live. Um, it's, you know, usually we do the 7 o'clock show, the 7 p.m. show. Um, but we had uh, Christina Marusic um, talking about her new book, um, New War on Cancer, which is just a fantastic, which is a fantastic discussion. I'm just love. I mean, you really, I would strongly recommend if you haven't listened to that show, please go back and listen to it. Uh, pick up her book, A New War on Cancer. Um, that would be fantastic. Um, you know, I, I would love, I think it'd be, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get too ambitious here, but I would love to do something where I know there's already some kind of reading groups that are going on in the area and stuff, but it might be kind of cool 
um, to, uh, you know, pick up on maybe some of the guests that we're having or things like this and looking back and maybe pulling out some of their books or some of the uh, things that they're um, publishing and kind of read that um, collaboratively, um, you know, either if we do that in kind of an online format or if we, uh, um, you know, find up some meetups in person. Um, I know that kind of our listeners are kind of scattered around the area, so I would probably kind of suggest that, you know, maybe we do something more like an online format. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll, you know, throw out some ideas from, from folks, um, particularly on our Patreon, um, um, Patreon page. Um, now recall just for everybody, when I say the Patreon page, you don't have to be a patron to view our Patreon page. So if you go to patreon.com slash RC press, um, the content you find up there right now, um, everything is posted is accessible for everybody, right? You don't have to be a patron to view the content that's there this summer, there's going to be some um, pa uh, patron exclusive comment or content that will kind of come out. Um, it'll be exclusive to patrons for like a week or two, but then will be released to everybody too as well. We don't want that to be a barrier um, for this. Um, but there's, you know, like to give something back to our patrons uh, who are really uh, doing what, you know, doing just, just doing amazing support of the show. I mean, it's just been, you know, I want to find, find ways of kind of giving back and kind of including them in decision-making and that kind of stuff. Um, so having said that, um, there are a, a couple things that uh, we will be doing on a pay, uh, Patreon. So one, you know, I was going to say, maybe I'll throw some ideas on our Patreon page about, you know, some of these uh, kind of you know, reading group or online reading group activities that we could do or something along those lines. Um, and then the, the other thing that, um, that I will be uh, probably floating out to our patrons is uh, um a little bit of stuff and this will be paid uh, patron exclusive because you know we're having kind of internal discussions in some ways um that we're going to be talking a little bit about the uh our pack right and talk about um some where we should be targeting some things um and uh, what organizations can uh, use our support and so on um so that'll be some of the things that we'll be doing over the summer um there too as well so anyways so that's kind of, you know, what's going on. So anyway, so then, you know, so Christine, Christina Marusic, she was, uh, you know, we talked to her on um, uh, Monday afternoon at 1.30 about her book, uh, New War, uh, The New, A New War on Cancer. And then in the evening, during our regular time at 7 p.m., I had Catherine Joyce on the show, and she's the investigative editor at In These Times. Um, she's been reporting on kind of right-wing, kind of particular religious extremist movements for, for quite some time. Um, her book, Quiverful, looking at the kind of inside the Christian patriarchy movie, came, came out in like 2009, right? And she had been reporting on that stuff bef even before then. Uh, we're actually going to take a look at one of her articles today um, that relates directly to that Colorado, Colorado school board I was talking about um, that she published in Truth Out back in 2022. Uh, but Catherine Joyce was, was phenomenal talking about Moms for Liberty. Um, and it's, uh, you know, pretty amazing for uh, to have her on the show. And I, for those folks, who, if you haven't listened to it, um, you know that one of the things that she was paying attention to, um, and you heard her talk about this, is that, uh, you know, that what happened to the Penridge School District, uh, basically becoming the first in uh, district um, that we can find, at least I think of the country, right, to uh, agree to hire Vermillion to rewrite its K-12 through curriculum. Um, that's pretty significant. And that kind of caught her attention, caught the attention of some others. I know they're going to be following up on that too as well. I'll probably be reaching out to some folks um, um, kind of in the area, um, kind of to put some folks in connection with her too as well. 
Um, but, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we can do here um, in part because of all of your support. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing, you know. So that's so that yeah so that on Monday um so that was this past Monday so then you know then we had on Tuesday we had, you know it was the primaries and of course I'm judge of elections at our precinct and um it was like five thirty in the morning to eleven o'clock at night it was it was uh I don't know if it was like at every whatever what everybody's experiences were I'd love to hear what your experiences were um at the polls um um and. We could uh, take, yeah, Ross basically said, uh, too, the Penridge Band Book Club is great. Um, yeah, I, I actually hope to be joining some of that this summer, Ross, because um, finally getting some time with that, because it looks like I've been itching to join that because the, the books that everybody's reading is fantastic. So um, <clears throat> that's great. Um, and I know that there's book clubs kind of also in the Central Bucks area and that kind of stuff. Um and I certainly would never want, you know, what I'm, what I was just talking about here to kind of be in saying some sort of competition or something like that. It was more like looking for other opportunities to kind of meet up with folks who are listeners of the show around this community um, um, to do this. And, you know, it might even be, we just kind of take a look at different articles and kind of talk about strategy and tactics and that kind of stuff. Um, just looking for just other ways of connecting with folks other than just, uh, um, just the show. Um, so yeah, and so that was that was Tuesday. Um, that was a, that was a huge day. On Wednesday, I was absolutely wiped out. So <laughs> that's where it was. Um, so yeah, so so that we will do. We'll, I'll do a show on Monday, this coming Monday, which will be looking digging down a little bit more into the uh, school boards, uh, Penridge and Central Bucks in particular. We're probably going to start poking around in the other districts and giving them a little bit more spotlight too, because there's some important things that are happening developments in like Palisades district and the Southern um, uh, area school district. And we've had folks on from the Kutztown area school district um, because I think it's, it's important for that. We're all talking to each other. Right. And that we're, it's uh, as much as we're, you know, everyone is fighting the fights in their own backyards, um, building that kind of network of support and connection can be important as well. Um, so we're all aware that we're in this fight together. Um, so then, yeah, so I'll do that show on, on Monday, probably, probably morning, maybe afternoon, was probably most likely morning. And then on uh, Monday evening, um, the reason I'm switching around is that um, we're recording another uh, episode of The Signal, which we've got some good stuff coming for you. Um, but I'll leave that to Cyril and the folks of the Bucks County Beacon to let you know um, what's coming up. But there we go. Um, so on today's show, like I said, there was, uh, Ross actually, uh, uh, texted me about this, um, earlier, um, today too, as well. I already had it on the show and I'm like, yep, going to be talking about this today. Um, cause this really, this caught my attention, right? This is something that, um, um, it, it was, it, it, so, well, <clears throat> the latest round of stuff that was published about this was, um, Back, it was last week, right? It was the ninth, like actually a little bit more than a week ago. Um, but this was this Colorado school board that was um, basically has seen itself, you know, taken over by conservatives and um, and seen really significant transformation to what's happening in their district, right? So let me just give you a little bit of, and 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 I'll talk a little bit about why I wanted to focus on this a little bit in in a minute. But just to set the stage here, this is from NBC News, and this is a, um, a piece by Tyler Kincaid, Kincaid, right? And I think it's important that this is finally making some national news. Um, 
It had been covered, of course, in Colorado quite quite a bit, as I've been finding out. But so this is a place called Woodland Park, Colorado, right? Um, and so, and this is again NBC News. When a conservative slate of candidates won control of the school board here 18 months ago, they began making big changes to reshape the district. Woodland Park, a small mountain town that overlooks Pikes Peak, became the first and so far only district in the country to adopt the American birthright social studies standard created by a right-wing advocacy group, advocacy group that warns of the, quote, steady whittling away of American liberty. The new board hired a superintendent who previously recalled was rec previously recalled from a nearby school board after pushing for a curriculum that would, quote, promote positive aspects of the United States, unquote. The board approved the community's first charter school without public notice and gave the charter a third of the middle school building. As teachers, students, and parents began protesting these decisions, the administration barred employees from discussing the district on social media. At least two staff members who objected to the board's decision were later uh, forced out of their jobs, while another was fired for allegedly encouraging protests. Right, so there's the, you know, setting the stage right there, right? You're seeing this 18 months ago, right? So 2021, those school board elections, right? Saw the ushering in of this conservative thing. Are you seeing a pattern here, folks in Bucks County, right? Are we seeing a pattern? Um, <clears throat> and then quickly moves to um, kind of shift things over, right? Um, and in addition to, we're going to talk about this uh, American birthright social studies standards in a minute um, and uh, a little bit more about some of that background. But notice some of the other things that happen, right? Is that there's the language of this, you know, promoting, uh, you know, positive views of the United States, right? We're trying to promote positive aspects of the United States. We, we see that there's been a whittling away of American liberty. Um, this is the language of organizations like Moms for Liberty. Um, this is the language that the far right is utilizing, the Christian nationalists in particular are utilizing as a way of trying to um, suggest that what they're doing is being, say, say patriotic, but we should be 100% clear, the kind of patriotism that they're talking about is one that is, as we've talked about on the show before, is a, a, the, it is from the perspective of the European colonizers, right? It is from their perspective, um, and everything is told from that perspective and that kind of evolution of kind of American exceptionalism, right? So while those curricula that might include discussions of slavery, right, they're more concerned with like how the colonizers, right, how the kind of Europeans who came here to colonize in the United States, how, the, how they kind of had a transformation of mind over time, right? It has less to do with the experiences and the conditions of those who were enslaved, right? Same thing when it comes to kind of, we're talking about uh, American Indians, indigenous peoples here in the United States, right? You're talking about the encounters with kind of American Indians and some of them were violent and some of this. So it's not as if there's like a complete erasure, right, of that. But what it is, once again, it's a talking about that expansionism, this American exceptionalism, right? I wanted to incorporate all the violences and all the genocides and all the kind of like, you know, centuries of slavery into some sort of, you know, heroic American myth, right? And yes, it is not exactly the same myth that was propagated, you know, say maybe 50 years ago, 
right? Um, it's been updated slightly within its language. Um, it's a little bit more attentive to the fact that there, you know, that you have to recognize other peoples, <laughs> right? Um, but it is a it is a reinstance, uh, kind of reestablishing this kind of white Christian nationalist narrative about American exceptionalism and this being this blessed place, right? So that's, you know, that's, that's the broad strokes. And this is kind of what we see here. So the other thing that happens here in this Woodland Park um, district is, um, one, we saw that the board, right, this is important to point out too as well, especially in light of what we've, we've talked about on the show this past week with Catherine Joyce, which we've talked about in the past. Um, we've talked about on The Signal, about charter schools, um, about they handed over a third of the middle school building to a charter school, right? So it wasn't even that they just allowed charters, right, within the district, right? Um, because this was their first charter school, right? And they had no public notice in that. I'm not sure, honestly, I don't know what these, uh, the um, public comment and uh, public discussion um, regulations and rules and um, are in, Colorado. But for example, if you're going to have like a major change, um, you're supposed to kind of have the opportunity for public comment where people who are actually funding the public school have a say, right? So I don't know, I just, just, I, again, I'm unaware of what that is at this point. It, it exists, I haven't looked into it yet. So I won't comment other than what I'm just saying now. So that happens, right? So there's this pushing through of this, and they're handing over half of the real estate of the school board, right? Taxpayer-funded public buildings to a charter school, right? So that's a significant change, right? That, again, goes back into the erosion of um, um, public schools, right? Against the erosion of public schools. Then you get the censorship. As teachers and students' parents began protesting decisions, the administration barred employees from discussing the district on social media. So, so here, here it is. I'll just say this was, uh, let's see, this is about this. This was the press release um, from, who's this from? Okay, yeah, it's from the school district. So here it is. It is important that information about activities and problems of the schools be provided to the community in a way that will create and maintain a dignified, professionally responsible image for the school district. Therefore, the procedures listed below shall be, be followed in giving official information to the news media. One, superintendent shall be the official spokesperson for the district. Two, news releases which are of a district-wide nature or pertain to established district policy shall be the responsibility of the superintendent. Three, no employee shall be interviewed by the media regarding school operations or student matters or offer quote without the prior written consent of the superintendent. Four, no social media posts regarding the district or school decisions will be made by employees of the school district in their capacity as employees without prior written consent of the district communications office. Five, the superintendent has established regulations for the dissemination of news releases pertaining to the individual school policies and athletics. And six, violation of this policy would be considered to be insubordination. Right? So it's only the employees of the teachers right, and the staff, right, and as Ross points out, yes, does not cover board members, right, so the board is allowed to do this, but that just, again, because they're in collusion, right, and this is pretty clearly the case. So 
so why is this important, right? Well, it's important because it shows you the trajectory, right? I mean, and this is there. And now what's interesting about this piece, right, um, was that after these uh, kind of, well, I'll go back to the report. This is how NBC News reports it. So I'm going to read it for here. So I'm not just kind of giving you commentary. So these rapid and sweeping shifts were, weren't coincidental. Instead, it was a plan ripped from the MAGA playbook designed to catch opponents off guard, according to a board member's email released through an open records request. So this, is, this shows you the strategy and how they think, right? So this is from that um, email from an open records request. Quote, this is the flood the zone tactic, right? Now that is a Steve Bannon tactic, right? So this is a flood the zone tactic. And the idea is if you advance on many fronts at the same time, then the enemy cannot fortify, defend, effectively counterattack on any one front, unquote. David Illingworth, one of the new conservative board members, uh, wrote to another on December 9th, 2021, weeks, before, weeks after they were elected. Div now this is back to his quote, quote, divide, scatter, conquer. Trump was great at this in his first 100 days. Right. So this is kind of like this is the situation that we find ourselves in here in Pennsylvania, right, too, as well. Right. What is useful about this open records request, what was reported on here in the um, by NBC News, was this idea that they were explicitly doing this. Right. And why I, I'm harping so much on this part of uh, this aspect of of this article is because I think that there are many parents and community members who are trying to push back to what's happening in these school districts, right? You know, what's happening here in Bucks County, what's happening in Burke County, what's happening in Montgomery County, you know, what's happening across this, across the Commonwealth, what's happening out in New York, um, right? But whether it's the book bans, whether it's the transgender, it's the bathroom stuff, it's pronouns, right? This is part of a, of what this new, like Christian nationalist extremist right has learned, right? The lessons that they've taken away, like the flood the zone tactic, right? Which again, Steve Bannon has been talking about this for ages, right? And, and you know, listen, they're, they're using the language of war. The idea is if you advance on many fronts at the same time, then the enemy cannot fortify, defend, effectively counterattack at any one front. So they look, these people in Colorado, and I would most likely extend this logic to the way that these extremist candidates on our school boards in Bucks County, for example, with the way that they operate, they view anyone that is outside of their circle, ideological kind of like pristine circle to be the enemy. If you remember uh, several weeks back, we had Patricia Roberts Miller on the show. Right, uh, for Out to Coop Live. We talked about her book, Demagoguery and Democracy, as well as some other stuff. And this is one of these principles of demagoguery, right? Is the idea is that you first, you know, part of what happens in demagoguery is that you are turning everything into us and them, right? And this is a mutually exclusive win or lose scenario. Right. And then the other side must be bad because they are not your side. Right. Not because they have different ideas, but because they are not with you. Right. This is one of the reasons so this operates like on, you know, this is this is the kind of the messianic zeal. 
that comes from this Christian nationalist new right. Right. The idea when you have this ideological purity, right, of and convincing that you have faith that your side is correct and that everyone else is therefore evil, rationality breaks down, right? It's like it's the difficulty of even having conversation, critical conversations, right? Negotiations with people like this. Because they've already divided things into us and to them. Right. And I think that, look. I've seen this in parents groups after parents groups after parents groups, community groups after community groups after community groups, which because I think the vast majority of people, they don't view the world in this kind of ideological, pure, religious zeal mentality, right? That they, they're willing, you know, to compromise, right? They're willing to kind of you know, discuss things. There's willing to make, you know, deals and understand that they may not get everything that they want, especially when it comes to something like a school board, right? They don't expect it to be, they don't want their community to be divided into us versus them, right? If you live in a community and you're established a community, you recognize that you have neighbors, right? You have neighbors that kind of live there that you actively kind of, you know, you know, chit-chat about their kids, you know, talk about different stuff, maybe, you know, borrow each other's tools, whatever it might be, right? And you know that, well, they're Republicans, right? And they're Democrats and they're kind of like, you know, whatever. And they're, you know, these people have got this issue and this people got, all that's part of like what it means to be in, in a community, right? And so we all recognize that on our daily basis. Most of us recognize that on a daily basis, right? I have neighbors who live across the, you know, across the street, down the street from me, who are strong Doug Mastriano kind of supporters, right? But when we're talking, we talk, <laughs> right? We don't kind of like, you know, hate each other, <laughs> right? You know, we have kids who grown up there. I know their kids, right? The kids went to college. I followed up with them, you know, like saw them when they come in to vote, say, hey, how'd so-and-so, oh, they just graduated, you know, this kind of stuff, right? I mean, I think that's how communities work. We recognize that we have this these real differences. And then on the other hand, I've got these other neighbors, right? One in particular, who's kind of in that mode, right? Won't even talk to me anymore, <laughs> right? Won't even say hello. It's like comical, right? But I mean, I think that those are the kind of differences. And I think most of us, like, want to be in a community where we recognize we're not all going to agree. And yes, we might even have heated arguments with each other at some time. But at the same time, you know, that's part of the vibrancy of being alive, right? There are things, right, of course, that, you know, that cross the line and that we find unacceptable, right? But, uh, you know, and then sometimes we will ostracize certain members of the community, right? Because if they've done, say, horrific things, <laughs> right? And then it becomes harder for us to have that kind of, that sense of it. But, I mean, but, you know, usually that's, you know, that's not how most people operate. So when, you know, these, these extremist policies, policies or candidates start showing up at school district, you try to be rational, right? You try to kind of reason with them. But as you've seen at the, you know, most recent, say, uh, Central Bucks school board meetings, the Penridge school board meetings, is like people regularly come to the microphone during public comment and say, look, I know you're not going to listen to us, but this is for the record, right? This is like, I, I'm, I'm no longer... I, I know that, you know, you're all going to start, you know, I'm going to start talking and you're going to pick up your phone and start texting on your phone. You're not even going to pay attention. You just can't wait for a public comment to get over so you can kind of, you know, kind of 
run roughshod over everybody and kind of institute your own agenda. And people are actively saying this, recognizing that that's where we're at, right? I think it's hard for most people, right, to get to that, or it takes time, I should say, to get to that point where the recognition that the people on the school board are not act acting in good faith, will not act in good faith, and do not care if they run roughshod over you. Right. And this kind of quote from this guy, David Illingworth at the school board, um, school board in uh, Woodland Park, Colorado. Perfect example. One more read of it. This is the flood the zone tactic. The idea is if you advance on many fronts at the same time, then the enemy, that is the community at large, then the enemy cannot fortify, defend, effectively counterattack on any front. Divide, scatter, conquer. Trump was great at this in his first 100 days. That's their tactic. Yes, Ross says, I called Megan out um, for talking as I spoke. Yep, I remember. That was one of the things I was, I was in, you know, that was one of the <laughs> moments I remember most distinctly. So I, I want to go to, just so, again, this is resonant here too as well. So this is a little bit down further in the same, in the same article. Okay, so teachers grew a particular alarm this year when word spread that Ken Witt, the new superintendent, did not plan to reapply for grants that covered the salaries of counselors and social workers. At Gateway Elementary School in March, Witt told staff members he prioritized academic achievement, not students' emotions. Quote, we are not the Department of Health and Human Services, he said, as teachers angrily objected, according to two recordings of the meeting made by staff members who shared with NBC News. Someone in the meeting asked if taxpayers would get any say in these changes, and Witt said that they already did when they elected the school board, right? This is another key thing, and this is one of the clips that I will be pulling out from um, last week's school board meeting in Penridge. This is kind of part of the line, right? So, like, look, voters had a say, taxpayers had a say when they voted, like the majority voted for us, and therefore that was their say, so therefore they supported these policies. Jordan Blomgren at the Penridge School Board meeting said exactly this, right? You voted us, the majority voted us, and they knew what we stood for, so therefore we can do this, and we are supposed to do this because we are there, right? There's some important slippage here, of course, right? And part of this is the problem, a significant problem in our culture, right? So voter turnout, for example, on Tuesday was somewhere in the neighborhood of 26%, 25, 26%, right? That's extraordinarily low, right? Now, you might want to say this is a primary, right? This is a primary and people were already kind of knew where things were going to go. But look, there were some, you know, some significant choices on those primary ballots between different kinds of candidates. Let me give you one example. In the Penridge School District, right, there was five openings on the school board, right, five. So you have to vote for five candidates. On the Democratic side of the ballot, right, there were six, right? So you have to choose five out of six, right? And I will tell you that a lot of people, now again, as a judge of elections, I don't talk to people about the choices they're making, right? I don't talk to them about, like, you know, you know, I've people say some, some pretty remarkable things. So I'll just leave it at that, right? Um, and I'm like, well, look, I'm here to help you 
make a choice. I'm here to help you make sure that you kind of get your ballot. And I'm here to make sure that you have any questions that we can answer that question, right? My role as a judge of elections is to facilitate the act of voting, right? And that's it, right? The the kind of the, the political discussions and things like this, that is not happening within the polling place, right? So, but they say them anyway, so I get to hear some things, right? But anyway, so, so it's like, so what it was clear to me, right, is that there's a lot of folks that have difficulty in determining the differences of school board candidates. I remember when I first moved to um, to the Penridge School District, when I moved in this area, um, and there was a school board election that happened kind of shortly after that. I didn't know this person from the next, right? I, I saw yard signs out. But who these people were, and I would sit there, I would type stuff up, I would try to kind of figure out who they were. And it was really hard to do as somebody who was not rooted in the community. Right. And look, in this area, like, and this is true in a lot of this, you know, in Bucks County, there's a lot of people moving in and out. There's a lot of new housing developments, a lot of people moving in. So people are, it's just, it's just a weird aspect of our democracy is that the, the things that happen closest to our homes, right, and our communities that affect us most directly are the things that we find most difficult in, f in finding out information about. And, you know, again, we could talk about, we go back into a big discussion about, you know, the breakdown of local news, about the, you know, uh, the, the corporate consolidation of kind of news media, the breakdown of, uh, you know, um, of investigative reporting at a local, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on with that. We could talk about the ways that say our communities become more and more fractured is, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff we could talk about. Um, but nonetheless, that that's, that's a true thing. So when I'm looking at these school board candidates, right, and I'm looking at, you know, I've got uh, on the Democratic side of the ballot, right, I have a, uh, I have to make a choice of five candidates um, and I'm presented with six, right? There were people, I can tell you this for a fact, that were just guessing, right? They were just guessing. And so is that a problem? Well, depends how you look at it. It is a problem if you realize that one of those people who was on the Democratic side of the ballot, right, was Scott Bob Sellers, right, who's a leader in the Penridge GOP, right, so if I don't know what's going on and I'm picking kind of randomly, I'm going to be giving some votes to that guy, right? Just because people are going to say, well, Bob, sounds good, <laughs> whatever it might be, right? So that's it. So that's the first side of the, of the problem with, with this, this issue and this quote here, right? So when they elected the school board. So number one, right, in school board elections, you have notoriously low turnout, right? So that let's say, let's be optimistic. Let's say you get a 35% voter turnout on, on election day, not the primary day, but in the fall, right? And the school board is elected by a majority, a school board member is elected by the majority of the votes cast, right? So let's just say, let's, let's, let's say, we'll just say, just for, we'll say it's a close election for one of these things, right? That's say 51%. They get just over half, right? So if that's true, that means that they were elected by 12, 13% of the eligible voters in the community, right? Now, what these school board members, just what this guy does, right? This wit dude in California, the superintendent basically said, look, they already had their say, right? They use the mantle of democracy to be able to say that, look, we represent the majority said this is what they want. So this is what we got. But in reality, what it is, is that you're talking about maybe 13% of the, of the electorate, 
13%, say 14, say 15, say 20% are the people that put these school board members on, like, on that board or elected the superintendent in this case. But what they do, they consistently make this move where they say that, well, look, you elected us. We're the majority. That's our mandate. Just like Jordan Blomgren did at the Penridge School Board, right, a week and a half ago. Or two weeks ago, almost. Week and a half. No, a week and a half ago. Right? And she said the majority wanted us to do this, right? That's the kind of call out that we need to do. But at the same time, we have to recognize the, the, there's a fact there too as well. Do they represent the majority of people in the district? No, they do not. They represent represent a very activated minority, right? Is it true that the majority elected them? It is true. Even if they, they were absolutely explicit about what they're running on and they got elected, yes, they were elected with people knowing that. But they're using that as a mandate, and they use that slippage to say, look, the majority elected us. We are just doing what the majority, what the majority wants, what, what the community does. They use the word community. The community elected us, right, when in reality we know they did not. A small fraction did. But then it gives us that other problem, right? And the other problem is, is that we don't have people turning out for elections, right? And that is not something that is specific to Pennsylvania, specific to Colorado, specific to any place, right? It is a cultural problem, which is the, which is the issue that we have to crack. Right. And I know, I mean, you could see people, you know, um, kind of making, making some, uh, some significant gains there. Kirsten says, congrats to all the, uh, all the sane and reasonable school board slates and bucks who got the work done, um, in the primary amazing work from council rock to, uh, central bucks to Penridge. Yes, absolutely. I agree. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, a little bit further down. So, okay, so we have that. So that, that's, that's really the kind of um, um, thing. Now, here's some of the effects of what's happened in this Woodland Park School, right? And I think this is going to be something that's useful to bring into the school boards, right? And again, remember, when we're talking, and there, was, there, were, there were a few people that did this at the, uh, the Penridge School Board meeting, but when we're talking at that mic, right, we were, people are coming and making public comment, primary audience is not going to be the people sitting on that board. The primary audience is going to be other people in that auditorium, right? I think it is safe to say that the, um, in those boards that are dominated by right-wing extremism, right? And like in the Penridge case, for example, nothing but, nothing but Republicans on there. There's some dissent within there, but still. Central Bucks is a little bit different, right? But the important thing is that we are using those as opportunities to organize, right? And here, this is a great example. The Woodland School uh, Park School Districts, um, this is what the implications of what's happened over the past year and a half. As the school, and back to the NBC News story, as the school year winds down, many of the Woodland Park School District employees are heading for the exit, despite recent recently receiving an 8% raise. At least four of the district's top administrators have quit because of the board's policy changes, according to interviews and emails obtained through records requests. Nearly 40% of the high school's professional staff has said they will not return to school next year, according to an administrator in the district, right? 100%. So they're having a, it's having a direct impact on being able to keep teachers. Now, teachers are making this point, right? Community members and teachers came out at kind of local districts too as well, making exactly this point. What we have now is a clear example. This is what happens when you drive this kind of extremism forward, 
right? Uh, and is this the way we want our school boards, um, uh, our school districts um, to end up? So having said that, right, so there's the kind of setting the stage with the Woodland Park. And I just wanted to kind of touch base on a couple things real quick about this story um, is that, you know, uh, this is like part of the follow the money, right? So we see that um, that in the Colorado case too as well, um, there is a new, uh, they have this, you know, again, this, uh, let's see when it was, let me get the great date for you. So, okay. So at the beginning of this year, back in January in 2023, that school district, um, um, the Woodland Park School District, they passed the resolution um, to use the conservative American birthright social studies standards that emphasize patriotism and American exceptionalism, right? Um, just after, this was like just a month after the whole State Board of Education rejected those things, right? Now, the standards were championed by the district's new interim superintendent, Ken Witt, who we just heard about, is uh, former Jeff Jefferson County Board President. He was... Uh, he was recalled along with two other, okay, we already talked about that. So this new standard moves forward, right? This is an article from the Colorado Public Radio. So American birthright standards are crafted by a national conservative coalition, the Civics Alliance. The standards focused on Western civilization, American exceptionalism, and a high pa highlight patriotism and Christianity, and have, have drawn sharp criticism from teachers and national social studies groups. Critics say the standards are too narrow, presenting a single glorified narrative of U.S. history that minimizes the perspectives of many. Right? So we've heard this. So that's, once again, we're seeing th this, this flag. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Catherine Joyce, who we just had on the show uh, this past week, um, this past Monday, um, Catherine Joyce uh, wrote a piece in uh, Salon, which was also republished by, by Truthout, called Right-Wing American Birthright Curriculum Pushes Christianity and Obscures Racism. Right? She published this in July 8th, 2022. Okay? So she was tracking this. Again, this is why what I try to do, and you know, a lot of times when we're inviting guests on the show, we're looking for folks who are digging into or have been digging into the very... Uh, trends and tendencies that we're all facing, right? Um, that kind of help kind of fill out some of this perspective. And so she was doing this, she was looking at this. And so what does she say about this? So again, this is from her article in Salon slash Truthout. So in late June, a conservative education coalition called the Civics Alliance released a new set of social studies standards for K through 12 schools with the intention of promoting it as a model for states nationwide. These standards entitled, titled American Birthright are framed as yet another corrective to supposedly, quote, woke public schools, where according to Republicans, theoretical frameworks like critical race theory are only one part of a larger attack on the foundations of American democracy, right? Those were all the big claims. Um, a little bit further down the article, even in this climate, American birthright seeks to distinguish itself on the scope of its ambitions, right? So she goes through a series of things that have been happening at the school board level, right? And she's saying this is the distinction. This American birthright stuff is important to pay attention to for this reason. The document, this American birthright curriculum stuff, um, is not a, well, uh, yeah, now she's correcting me as I say it, right? The document is not a curriculum, but rather a model set of social studies standards of the sort that state level education departments adopt in order to guide and regulate individual school districts as they craft their own curricula. That's by design. Civics Alliance describes its mission as, quote, preserving and improving American civic education and preventing the subordination of civics education to political recruitment tools, whatever, unquote. 
naming, uh, namely by writing a mo model bills and social studies standards that lawmakers and activists can use to influence the curricular schools and the school districts create. As a document explains, quote, we chose this form because state standards are the single most influential document in America's education administrations. Not only do such standards have significant impact on public school curricula, they also affect those of AP courses, charter schools, private schools, homeschooling, and textbooks used across the country. American birthrights authors charge that, quote, far too many, unquote, state education departments, quote, are set on imposing state social studies standards that combine the worst of misguided pedagogical theory with the worst of anti-American aminus, unquote. So Civics Alliance is effectively bypassing them, taking their pitch directly to state governments, lawmakers, and school boards, as well as grassroots activists who can pressure politicians to deploy the new standards. Okay, so why does this matter, right? This matters in, in part because this Civics Alliance has gone under the radar for the most part, especially in our kind of, you know, school board battles that we're having in um, Pennsylvania at this point. Right. In part because we're seeing the, you know, the invasion of like the Hillsdale College curriculum. Right. And the hiring of in the Penridge School District of these folks, um, uh, Vermilion Education that is sponsored by, you know, uh, Hillsdale College that is actually try attempting to shift it at a district wide level. Right. And it builds a constituency. Right. This is the important part. These school board battles are about building a constituency at the local level, right, across several locales, right, in order to drive political participation, right, that could influence not just what happens at the school board, right, but what happens statewide, right? This is what I talked about with Catherine Joyce this past Monday, right, was, was that idea that at least in theory, this is what some of the, these conservative groups are doing in theory. This is what Moms for Liberty is about, right? Has been recognized for in Florida, right? Is basically creating this kind of groundswell, right? Through its ideological kind of like, you know, anti-trans stuff or, you know, all the things doing school boards in order to increase voter turnout to influence the electorate further up the ballot. Right. That doesn't mean that's Moms for Liberty's ultimate goal, although I would say that I'm sure they have those discussions. Right. That doesn't mean all these right wing local folks are thinking about that actively. But it means that there are people within the, the kind of right wing Republican Party political apparatus that are looking at these school board elections as a way of having, again, a next round of statewide takeover. If you look at these standards that, you know, the that the uh, Hillsdale College puts out for the K through 12 curriculum and you look at, you know, this organization looking at um, um, kind of American birthright citizenship or American birthright curriculum standards, they're very tight. Right. They don't agree on every single point, but they're very tight. So, again, once you get people activated, now you've got yes, you've got school board elections coming up here in the fall. Right? They are going to be use that as a jumping point to go into the 2024 election, which once again, the state house is going to be up, right? Once again, we're going to have now again, it's not a gubernatorial election, which is good for us in Pennsylvania, right? But nonetheless, 
um, we'll start seeing that kind of push at the state level, right? And if if the kind of Democrats lose control of both houses in the uh, uh, in Washington, then we you know I wouldn't doubt if we're going to start seeing some of the pushes of this at a national level. Right? So that's why I wanted to spend a little bit of time kind of looking at this, right? <clears throat> now. You also saw, so again, I'll, I'll stop with that um, for today. <laughs> um, and I know there's a lot of stuff going on nationally, um, but this was, I thought was a valuable um, case study to be looking in there. You can check out the links in the um, show notes. Um, yeah, with that. Uh, let's see what else we got. So uh, yeah, as I mentioned at the top, Florida uh, Governor Ron DeSantis um, signs that bill, right, which is basically going to... Uh, go right after the LGBT community once again. Um, I'll give you the, this is from the uh, Associated Press and NBC News 6. Uh, Florida Governor Ron Santos chose a Christian school as his setting for signing bills Wednesday that ban gen- gender surgical procedures for minors, restrict pronoun use in schools, and forces people to use the bathroom corresponding to their sex in some cases, and that means sex assigned at birth. DeSantis has made anti-LGBTQ leg- legislation a large part of his agenda as he built towards Republican presidential campaign, blah, 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 right? So we see these kind of moves being made um, here, which is going to have a detrimental effect on, like, you know, young folks, right? And the thing is, it's a broader attack across the community because once you establish this stuff at the, you know, so-called protect your children, right? You know, they said, let kids be kids is the name of this thing. Like these Republicans kill me with their ability to kind of like, you know, dupe everybody with headlines, right? Dupe everybody with titles. Um, but that's kind of what they do. But that gives us that trajectory, right? So we see an alliance between kind of mainstream Republican politics. And why do I say, why do I call Ron DeSantis mainstream? Because he's the governor of Florida, right? He's supported by the Florida Republican Party, right? And lots of Republicans say, well, I saw a DeSantis sticker the other day. So that is mainstream, right? That is not an extreme Republican Party. That is the mainstream Republican Party today. Yes, Kirsten, national issues. These were some of the ones that we didn't talk about. Uh, MAGA default crisis week of action starts today. Um, there's going to be four events today in Bucks County launch the effort to educate our neighbors and about the looming default. Um, so you can you, you know, check out the budget crisis stuff or the, the default crisis. Um, head on over to uh, Indivisible, Indivisible stuff, get information for on that. If you got a link, uh, Kirsten, you can drop it into the show notes. I'm sure people would, I mean, drop, drop it into the comment. I'm sure people would dig it. Um, that is, uh, there it is. It's Langhorn at 3.40 p.m. in New Hope at 5.30 p.m., um, Doylestown at 6.30 p.m., and Ben Salem at 7.30 p.m. Um, and this is, you know, these are going to be uh, just... Uh, I avoided talking some of the debt crisis stuff today or the... Or the, uh, um, the um, default crisis today in part because um, I didn't want to get too frustrated today, <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, about kind of what's going on and what may happen as a result of this and the lessons that have not been learned um, by past Democratic administrations. But I'm going to put that aside for now. 
Um, so yeah, so there you have it. And, you know, again, we're seeing, you know, I just thought that was an interesting story about New York sinking. So, um, we'll leave it at that. Um, so listen, I'm gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dig on, dig into some Pennsylvania politics and, um, talk a little bit more about what's coming up in the weeks ahead. All right. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. I uh, want to remind you can help support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash RC press. You can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. We'll be back right after this quick break. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1989. That was the day that black author and Marxist theorist C.L.R. James passed away. James was born in Trinidad, at the time a Caribbean colony that was part of the British Empire. His father was a school teacher. James became a leading intellectual on the subject of black liberation. His most famous work, The Black Jacobins, tells the story of the 1791 Haitian Revolution, when enslaved black Haitians successfully overthrew French colonial rule. James was a frequent contributor to Labor Action, a Marxist journal produced in New York from 1940 to 1950. He wrote about the struggles of black workers. He often penned fiery language. For example, in 1941, James wrote an article imploring black workers not to cross the picket line during a strike against the Ford Motor Company in Detroit. Ford had a reputation of hiring black workers at a time when many employers discriminated in their employment practices. But James warned his readers that the Ford company was no friend to the worker and that the company was attempting to use race to keep its workforce divided. James wrote, quote, Ford is one of the most dangerous enemies of labor who exist in this country. This enemy of society has been laying a train of race hatred in Detroit and is now about to touch it off. The organized working class movement and the Negroes will have to fight hard and long to check and frustrate and defeat this sinister plot. This will be no easy fight. In other articles, James also used his pen to call out labor unions for not including black workers and to call for the unification of black and white workers in their struggle. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Hey, everybody, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Uh, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken, back here with you on this Friday, May 19th. Yes, indeed. Um, so this week was the PA primaries, and there was a lot happening, um, to say the least. Um, one of the, um, you know, one of the races that made national attention was the uh, race for Philadelphia mayor. Um, so Sherelle Parker um, won that that contest, and I think uh, lots of progressives, um, people who've been organizing within Philadelphia were really pushing for Helen Jim. I'm a supporter. I was hoping that she was going to win too as well, but she ended up coming in third in that race. And so, I mean, a couple things kind of, a couple kind of takeaways um, from that, which I think is kind of important for us to, you know, just to look at from this, right? I think that um, 
one, and you know, and 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 people have recognized this, written about it quite extensively now, is that you know the the progressive movement, right, and Helen Jim's um, campaign again had great traction, had amazing organizing, knocked tons of doors, um, but once again we see that um, it did not make strong inroads within um, um, among black Philadelphians, right? It had some, but like not as deep as we needed in order to kind of win that kind of election, right? So that's one of these, you know, again, one of these markers, right? That's a, that's a clear um, kind of indication, right? That there's a, there's a gap, right? Um, not necessarily in the outcomes of politics, but in terms of like relationships to candidates and particular kinds of movements, right? Um, and what that's about, I think, you know, again, we're going to learn a lot in the, in the, in the coming weeks. The second thing is that, um, and this is becoming, I think, increasingly important as we see social media platforms begin to kind of like crumble and become, um, deeply problematic is that the, how, what the movements that are expressed on social media, right. Um, and what we see through the lens of social media is clearly not, um, completely reflective of what's happening on the ground, right? And um, it's important not to substitute one for the other, right? I remember looking at, and you know, again, I'd have the, you know, people, the Helen Jim campaign were posting all the time, right? And it was easy, uh, for me at least, I mean, maybe you have a different experience than I do, but it was easy for me to really start thinking that, Oh man, she's going to win. She's going to win. Right. I remember calling some people and asking them about what their perspective on it. And there were some that thought, you know, thought she was going to win, but then I had this just nagging feeling like, I don't know. There's like, you know, I don't really know that that's going to be the case. And as much as the, the excitement was clear behind her campaign um, in Philadelphia, as we see, you know, she came in third, you know, she was a close third. I mean, you know, second and third was pretty, was pretty tight. Um, but Sherelle Parker, um, you know, she won. And, you know, one of the things that is going to be important is, right, you know, let, let, let here, I'll, I'll read you this little piece from um, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer, right? The voters who propelled uh, Sherelle Parker to victory. Um, and this is from a team of uh, journalists in the Philadelphia Inquirer. They looked at the kind of precinct results, right? <clears throat> and this is what we get. So, Sherelle Parker's victory in Philadelphia's Democratic mayoral primary was powered by black voters and residents of the poor and low-income um, neighborhoods um, hardest hit by the city's gun violence crisis. The bulk of the results have been counted, and with the final votes continuing to stream in over the coming days, we analyzed those results for each of the Philadelphia's uh, 1,703 voting precincts, known as divisions, which are the most granular way the city reports the vote count. And that analysis shows that as in past elections, the votes split along many of the city's most persistent social and economic divides. Parker's win, while convincing, was not monolithic. As a baseline, it's, it's uh, worth noting that she won just about a third of the city's votes, right? Because you had, you know, one, two, three, four, five main candidates plus some others, right? So that vote was split among them. So she won a third, so that's like, say, like, We'll just say 33%, 33% of the vote, but that was not the majority of the voters in the district, right? That does not mean, however, <coughs> that the majority in the district are, are, are progressive, right? That, let's be clear about that, right? And that's not even to say that, you know, Sherelle Parker's stuff is not, you know, she has some progressive parts of it. You know, so let's, you know, disaggregate that. 
Um, so the broke was actually, I said 33, it's actually 32.5% of the vote is kind of what she achieved. So Parker's victory was anchored by Northwest Philly. Parker is a longtime political leader in Northwest Philly, which decades ago organized a black political powerhouse known as the Northwest Coalition. The modern day iteration of that movement continues to be known for high voter turnout and unified political preferences. After years of working for longtime council member uh, Marian Tosco, Parker herself represented the area and city council. And while she received her largest margins in this region, Parker's base of support also extended across a wide slot, swath of the city's north and west. Okay, so this is and this is something that I and I think I believe firmly that the Helen Jim campaign and Helen Jim herself understands this fully, right? And you saw her after the election, Helen Jim and the campaign coming out was like, "All right, this was a great race. We're on. We're going to support this. Let's get back to work." Right? There was not a kind of like disaffection like Helen Jim didn't be like oh you know progresses blah 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 you know we didn't win no she's like okay congratulations Cheryl Parker we're going to work with her to kind of best for Philadelphia I think that's important to do because I think that uh, longtime organizers recognize this right Parker longtime political uh, political leader in northwest Philadelphia right which decades ago organized a black powerhouse known as the northwest coalition right she has been around right in that community this she's not just like reaching out to that community to see if she can garner some votes she has been in that community she is of that community and she's organizing that community right and any kind of substantial political allegiance right um to a particular candidate or coalition or whatever it might be is going to need that same kind of long-term rootedness right especially you know again it's one thing to have you know the support of college students and kind of young professionals and things like this in a, in a particular district who are relatively new to, to Philadelphia. It is a whole different one to kind of say that you're kind of rooted in Philadelphia as a whole. Right. And so, I mean, I think that's important. Right. And that's not, that's not a criticism of Helen Jim, Helen Jim, Helen Jim has been doing the hard work for quite some time, which is, I think is why there was so, uh, there were a lot of folks that thought she had, you know, that she was really, you know, had a shot to win. And like, look, you know, she received what, uh, 22% of the vote, right? The next, uh, Reinhardt was not, who finished number two was 22.9% of the vote, right? So you got those two basically in a, in a dead heat. So, you know, again, Sherelle Parker still won by uh, 10 percentage points, right? But, you know, it's 10 percentage points that, you know, still well below the majority. So there's lots kind of, there's a lot of going on there. Um, <clears throat> how the turnout looked out. So this is the also important part. Winning this election didn't just come down to who voters preferred. It also depended on who turned out to vote. I mean, this is like the standard issue, right? We're visualizing that in two ways. They're talking about the argument. The precinct map shows the percentage of registered Democrats that have voted um, a measure of overall voter turnout. The ward map is a little different. It shows the percentage, blah, 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 right? So it shows that there was high voter turnout. And then once again, Philadelphia's starkest divides were along race and ethnicity. Philadelphia is literally and physically divided by race so dramatically that nearly half of registered Democrats live either in a precinct that's more than 75% black or more than 75% white. And those divisions translate into political polarization. Majority black precincts gave nearly 56% of their vote to Parker, while majority white ones just gave her 12% of their vote. And there was a powerful relationship between the black share of the precinct's population and its support for Parker. So much so that all of the demographic factors the inquiry looked into, none proved more strong. 
right? There's a bunch of other stuff in there. But that's really the issue, right? I mean, for all the stuff, right, you know, we see, you know, in the wake of George Floyd's shooting, right, in the wake of the kind of Black Lives Matter kind of issue, is that one of the things that has come out of those movements again and again, again, this is not a new claim, this is not a new issue, right? But this is nonetheless showing you how more important it is, is that race <coughs> is a dividing line that runs through our country, right? And unless race is brought to the forefront, especially in places like Philadelphia, right? As a, not as a, and also race, right? But race becomes an integrated part in terms of a, like a, like a campaign and is established and proved in practice over time, right? Then this is going to be a continued problem, I think, for progressives. I'm not saying black folks aren't progressive. No, matter of fact, is that, you know, if you want to look at like most of the accomplishments and most of the progressive accomplishments have done, have, have been accomplished because of the high voter turnout of, of, of African-American voters, particularly black women, right? This has been a critique of the Democratic Party establishment for quite some time, is that the Democratic Party establishment, right, and, right, segments of the, this has been like the long-time problem, or not the long time, but this has been in recent years from whether you're talking about the Bernie Sanders campaign, this has been less true when you're talking about AOC because she comes out of those communities. Less true at a summer Lee because she comes out of those communities, right? But it's like wanting to get behind those candidates. Now, Helen Jim, of course, you know, she's been part of Philadelphia for quite some time now, right? She has cut her teeth on public school work, right? She has cut her teeth on the city council, right? And she's there to stay and she continues to organize, right? I mean, I think it's telling that Helen Jim comes out and she did not sound defeated. She did not feel like this is a huge letdown, right? She felt like, okay, here we go. We got, this is amazing. Now let's get back to work. Let's keep on going, right? The idea that you've mobilized all these folks and now you can do even more, right? That's an amazing mentality um, to have, to not feel defeated. And again, I'm sure she was upset that she lost. Don't get me wrong. But to not see this as like a defeat of progressives. And this is what drives me nuts about, you know, even like the reporting The Intercept, right? I mean, in the reporting The Intercept shows this kind of breakdown where you saw, you know, you know, this mixed bag for progressive candidates. Um, if we think about like, if it's just like, did the progressive win or did it not win? And then if the progressive didn't win, all oh, then we throw our hands up as all oh, progressives can't win, right? No. You see this as kind of like, what were you able to do and how do you translate that into kind of more, right? How do you do the next thing? This has been my longtime problem with the Green Party, right? I mean, the Green Party, look, I, I campaigned for Green Party candidates when I lived in D.C., right? Like at the polls, like arguing for Green Party candidates, right? We got some of them elected in the district, right? But, you know, but most places, the Green Party is just like, <clears throat> we've got a sense, sense of principles that people can kind of like, yes, identify with and feel good about themselves, right? They'll have a candidate that will run, but there's no real building, right? It's only you'll have some random candidate when it comes to presidential elections, and you'll have maybe a spattering of candidates across the board, but there's no organization. <clears throat> there's no like commitment to the long-term work of building coalition and building power from the ground up. It's a statement of principles. That's not a party. 
what Helen Jim is doing and what Working Families Party, I would have to say too as well, what they've been doing, that's long-term political movement building, right? And so I guess my message here is, you know, kind of looking at this, you know, if any of you are feeling defeated by Helen Jim's loss today, do not, right? In matter of fact, you're, you're basically saying you should be looking around. Everybody should, who's organized in Philadelphia, who's in Philadelphia, who's still got, now going to be, Sherelle Parker is going to be there. Now you're basically, you're going to take your 22% of the vote and any other of that coalition you're going to build and use that to continue to push Philadelphia in this positive direction, right? Because on the other end of the state, what did we see, right? At the other end of the state in Pittsburgh, right, Sarah and Amarato one huge in the Democratic Party uh, primary for Allegheny County Executive. Now, if you remember, Sarah and Amarato was a group of, uh, you almost call them the PA squad, right? That got elected um, in 2018, right? And that you had Summer Lee, you had Sarah and Amarato, you had Elizabeth Fiedler, who all the three of them kind of ran together. They were all, they were together all the time. I remember we went to a, we went to uh, at the when we used to have the PA Progressive Summit in in Harrisburg. I really miss that, by the way. Right, I know there was a lot of criticisms of what that summit was. I know that there was a lot of you know so it wasn't organized enough on uh, it wasn't organized enough by uh, about, about organizing it was more focused on this panel stuff. But nonetheless, is like this was the this is one opportunity where people across the state actually got to kind of come together and meet. Right, I mean, again. Whatever. It is what it is. I'm not going to go off on that for right now. But anyways, that's when I first met Sarah Ann Murado, right? Uh, Sean Kitchen, you know, who used to you know, uh, run this podcast with me, right? He was he was my co-host. Um, and he wrote for Raging Chicken for years. And now he works out. He's, you know, he's uh, um, working for, um, uh, working, out, working out in Harrisburg. I'm sorry. I'm just a little off today. Um, but he interviewed... Um, one of our kind of early interviews that we aired was with Sarah Anamorado, um, Elizabeth Fiedler, and Summer Lee. And he interviewed them um, when nobody thought they had a shot, <clears throat> right? And all three of them won, right? Um, I'm not sure. Malcolm Kenyatta, did he get elected in that one too as well in that uh, 2018 election? I'm just, I'm spacing on that. But you basically had, you know, I, I remember, and they got that. Now, what they did out in Pittsburgh, right? This is what, you know, what Summer Lee did, right? And what uh, Sarah Anamorado did. And everyone who supported them did is they continued to organize, right? They continued to organize and build a base, right? I remember when uh, DSA, there's a strong DSA chapter of Democratic Socialist America. There's a strong DSA chapter out there in, um, in Pittsburgh, which has been doing this kind of really kind of like on the ground work. You recognize, for example, um, in the wake of, um, you know, continued um, police violence against uh, kind of African-American citizens, right? They basically started doing these things. What was like a tail, they called it a taillight clinic, right? And what that meant is that, hey, if you've got a taillight out, right, stop by this parking lot. You know, they put out flyers and everything. Stop by this parking lot during this time and we will fix it for you. No cost, Right. So it could be swapping out a bulb, right? Fixing a, bro- a broken uh, broken thing and they would get parts and they would do all this kind of stuff, right? Now, why did they do that, right? Um, there were people that looked at them and was like, oh, what are you doing? Is a taillight clinic? What is that? Well, what they did, they went, the reason why they did that is because that the number one reason for getting pulled over by a cop, right, 
was to having a taillight that was out. Right? And if you're black and you're pulled over by a cop, your chances are higher that that is going to turn bad. I'm not saying it will always be, but those are the kinds of situations in which we've seen enough examples of now, you would hope, to show that that can escalate quickly to someone getting killed, to that black person getting killed. Right? So they was like, nope, here we're going to do. We're going we're gonna, to, this is, we're going to take this one thing away. Right? Did that solve police violence? No. But what that was is that it was a concrete organizing opportunity to do something positive, to be in the community, right? And to talk to people, right? They've been doing that kind of work over there. Summer Lee, for example, has constantly gone back, right? Um, to her community and build and organize. And she even says, we bring the community to, we bring the organizing to the floor of the state Capitol. And she was very clear about that. She's an organizer who found herself inside the halls of um, in the Harrisburg legislature. Now, of course, she's in DC, right? But sh that organizing continued, right? Same thing was true of, of uh, Sarah Inamorato, right? Sarah, same was true with Ed Ganey, right? New mayor of, of Pittsburgh, right? And the progressive movement, right? The left, progressive left movement in Allegheny County, um, based in Pittsburgh, continued to do that organizing work, right? And now, just here's like, this is just from the Post-Gazette, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Um, it tells you a lot about this, right? I'll just read you a little bit from the opening here. And this is really good. I thought this really is encouraging and positive ways to thinking about kind of that movement building, right? So the, uh, the title is How Sarah and Amarada Won, the State Lawmakers Campaign for County Executive Benefited, a local progressive movement um, that now dominates Democratic politics in Allegheny County. <clears throat> Her campaign stayed relentlessly on message. Allies helped turn out supporters in mass, and she raised more than $800,000 in four months. But the biggest factor in Sarah Anamorado's victory in Tuesday's Democratic primary for Allegheny County Executive took root several years ago, an advisor for a rival campaign said. That's when Ms. Anamorado and others began building a local progressive movement that now dominates Democratic politics in Allegheny County. Quote, it's now a clear majority of Democratic primary voters who are progressive, unquote. Michael Butler, Michael Butler, a longtime political strategist who advised trial lawyer Dave Fawcett's primary campaign, said Thursday. Mr. Butler estimates that progressives now make up about half of the people who actually vote in Democratic primaries, making her, quote, almost unbeatable on Tuesday. Quote, it's not just her dumb luck, he said. It's part of the reason it got there. She's part of the reason it got there. No, she's part of the reason. She's part of that movement. A third-term state representative from Lawrenceville, um, Ms. Inamorado, um, topped a six-candidate field. She won more than 37% of the vote to become the party's nominee to succeed outgoing county executive Rich Fitzgerald, a term-limited Democrat. Right? <clears throat> so she's moving forward. Right? Um, you see me. Blah, 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 blah. Her campaign now echoes themes from her first House run when she supported raising the minimum wage and strengthening public education. Her priority, priorities as she seeks the county's um, top elected job include addressing gender and racial wage gaps, increasing funding for community college, and banning gifts to political appointees and county government. Quote, the people powered our campaign, unquote, Ms. Emirato told supporters Tuesday night in Bloomfield. Quote, we brought together people from all walks of life. We engage people where they're at. 
She carried most precincts in Pittsburgh and saw strong support in some suburbs in east and north of the city, including Penn Hills, Hampton, Ross, and McCandless. Right? And it goes on. The point being there is that, one, she's... They built this campaign from the ground up. They built an organizing effort. She was, a, you know, she worked as in kind of community organizer, organizer, nonprofit stuff before she was ever kind of going to run uh, for office, right? Continued to help build that movement along with other folks and that movement kind of build to and then supported her, right? And now you've got, remember we talked about this with um, uh, Mark Engler's work, right? Um, and then hopefully we can get him back on the show to be able to talk about this stuff. Is that that whole idea is that social movements can be in that position of supporting candidates, right? Of getting them outside of the reliance upon, say, corporate donors or Democratic Party machine politics as a way of getting elected by building that counter base. <clears throat> so it's amazing. I mean, it's just, you know, amazing to see what uh, Sarah Enrado has, has done. Now, The Intercept had a really good article on this by um, uh, Akila Lacey. Akila Lacey, um, she starts out here, right? Progressive candidates in Pittsburgh won two key races on Tuesday. Reform candidate um, and chief public defender Matt Dugan ousted a longtime um, tough-on-crime incumbent to win the primary for district attorney in Pennsylvania's Allegheny County. And then here, which we just talked about, the state representative Sarah Inamorato won the Democratic primary for Allegheny County executive. Both will advance to general elections in November. Dugan is currently running unopposed, and Inamorato will face Republican candidate uh, Joseph Rocky. Right? And then... The win adds to a recent body of progressive success in crucial swing state where Republicans have made inroads in recent years. Since 2018, progressives have surged in Pennsylvania races from Congress to state legislature and local government, picking up key seats in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia along the way. Conventional politics in swing states have typically shunned progressives in favor of moderate candidates. Tuesday's results are evidence that candidates who prioritize issues facing working people can help build the Democratic base in purple states rather than shrink it. Representative Summer Lee, a progressive Democrat who went from the Pennsylvania State House to the U.S. House last year, said during remarks at Inamorado's election party on Tuesday night. <coughs> Quote, back in the day when they doubted us and they said, these crazy women can't win those state house seats. We told them back then that the power of the people was greater than the power people in power. Unquote. Lee said, Quote, what we showed them tonight, what we've shown them in every single election cycle since we started is that the power of the people is always greater than the people in power. Right. And it goes on. Then she thought, then, then she talks about uh, not um, Lee, but this is um, uh, uh, Akilah Lacey writing about this stuff. So on Tuesday in Philadelphia's mayoral race, though, the left candidate lost to Sherelle, uh, Sherelle Parker, a former city council majority who had support from the cadre of democratic officials and local unions as well as Philadelphia's black clergy. Former city council member Helen Jim came in third place with 21% of the vote, notes 22, um, to Parker's 33%. Jim's campaign had been um, buoyed by endorsements from national progressives, and the last poll in the race showed her with a slight lead. A preliminary breakdown of the votes by the Philadelphia Inquirer showed that Parker won in precincts where a majority of black. We just talked about that, right? So it goes on and talks a little bit about the, um, the back. One of the things that you know people thought that why Helen Jim was going to actually be able to pull this out too is because Parker has been, you know, she campaigned about, you know, combating gun violence, right? But she wanted to do by ramping up the stop and frisk policy, right? Which we know the stop and frisk, frisk policy has been one of the ways that has allowed like racism to be used as a policing tactic, right? So, um, um, 
uh, that was one of the reasons why Larry Krasner got elected in Philadelphia, because we know that that was that was problematic. Right. But because of the hysteria around this violence. Right. That and the, the only solution that we seem to be able to come up with in this country is to get, get more cops that won the day. Right. So anyway, so it's like I said, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, but one of the things that I think that why it's important to pay attention to what's happening in Pittsburgh. Right. Um, is it shows what that kind of organizing can do. And unlike what the organizing was like in Philadelphia, right, where you had, you know, again, you have a, a strong organizing base among progressives there. That's absolutely true. Um, Pittsburgh is a much smaller city than Philadelphia, right? But nonetheless, they were able to turn that system, right? They were able to turn it pretty quickly. I'll also say that, you know, one of the things that I think <clears throat> Sarah Anamorato, um benefited from is basically, you know, not just in Allegheny County, but in some other parts of the state that kind of surround Allegheny County, is that you've seen a turnover in old guard uh, union leadership, right? Is that one of the one of the, the the strongholds of the kind of Democratic Party machine in Philadelphia are the trades, the trade unions, right? Um, but trade unions um, have their own problems, right? When it comes to the relationships with progressive politics. Right. It's a real mixed bag. Right. And we could talk about that another time. But but it's still the old guard in the union leadership. Right. Which is white and male. Right. That still controls a lot of um, where money goes and which candidates get that money and support. Right. In Philadelphia. That's changing a bit in, in Pittsburgh. So we see these kind of alliances beginning to shift to as well. It becomes really important. So <clears throat> anyways. So that's that. What else we have to say? Um. Oh, other big news here in, in, in Pennsylvania, right? So we know uh, Heather Boyd uh, won in Delco. Huge news. This is probably, uh, in terms of the impact of what happens in state politics over the next several years, this is probably one of the best, uh, the best pieces of news we could have. Now, you remember, um, Heather Boyd is run, was running for the uh, 163rd District, right, which is down in Delaware County. Um, and that became an open seat because uh, the the former Democratic representative down there was Mike Zabel, or Zabel, uh, and he uh, was he stepped down because of sexual um, sexual harassment allegations, right? Um, so credible allegations were brought against Mike Zabel um, by a, a labor organizer, um, basically say, behaving inappropriately and all this kind of stuff. And so he stepped down. So there had to be a special election to fill that seat, right? Democrats, this would have been, I think, put things at. Um, equal, right? Um, but Democrats won. Heather Boyd came out and won that election um, um, fairly, fairly, fairly <laughs> significantly. Um, so uh, she will um, go on and will Democrats will maintain control of the state legislature was absolutely critical. Right. Um, and as Jenny Stevens writes in the, um, uh, the Bucks County Beacon, she Boyd's win ensures that a Democratic agenda will continue to move forward and that Republicans can't um, continue to push a contra uh, constitutional abortion ban, which is critical. Right? <clears throat> I'll give you a little bit of Boyd. She's a former teacher and Boyd brings a wealth of experience to the table. Most recently, she worked as district director and senior advisor to the Democratic Congresswoman Mary uh, Gay Scanlon. Uh, Boyd also served as chief of staff for state representative Leanne Kruger and was responsible for establishing a Delaware County chapter of a national organization of women, right? 
Democrats had, had control of the House in November, but over the last six months, well, yeah, we've seen the, the, the drama. So that's absolutely critical, right? So she won. Congratulations um, to Heather Boyd. Um, that is, uh, cannot be emphasized how important it is to maintain control of the, the state house, um, given the fact that Republicans are looking at every opportunity to push their more abortion ban nonsense. Um, and this will um, kind, of cu- kind of cut that off, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. Good. Um, <clears throat> so we also saw, I'll mention this, this briefly, um, this kind of happened like a like right, I think this stuff was getting published about this as we were giving our show last week. Um, but of course, Central Bucks School District um, has been banning more books. Um, they banned uh, uh, Genderqueer and this book is gay from school library shelves. Uh, of course, school district spokespeople did not respond for comment because they don't want, right? Um um, you had uh, Catherine uh, Semish, who's a former, uh, or she's a retired English school teacher. She says, I don't think it was, uh, um, I don't think this ought to come as a surprise. Um, she said, uh, uh, and she's also a co-founder of Advocates for Inclusive Education, a group that's opposed the school board's policies regarding library books, prohibiting staff advocacy in classrooms. But this was the intent of the library policy to make it easier to remove books, right? She said, exactly. Right. So that is continuing. Right. They are doing what they're they were elected to do. Right. What the community elected them to do. This is what the community wanted. That's why they voted them. No. So the other primaries here. And again, I, I'm, I take the, the the school board primaries with a bit of a grain of salt here. Um, so and I've already mentioned some of the reasons why I take it with a grain of salt in part because. Um, we're not seeing contested races. Right. You have there. Now, the only bit of information we have that, that may provide some insight in terms of uh, for the primary vote is the fact that in the school boards, um, you can cross register, right? So it means Democrats can register as Democrats and Republicans on the, both ballots and Republicans can be on both ballots too. So among the, if you look at the Penridge School Board, right? Um, and this was also true, I don't know the exact percentages here, um, maybe somebody else out there has got the actual actual numbers, um, which would be awesome. I was looking for them before the show, but I just could not come. I know I have them someplace, but I, where they are, I don't know. Um, if you, or not that I don't know. Um, if we go to the election board and I could break it down, I don't have the time to go through and do all the percentages. That's what I really mean to say. Um, but so on the Democratic side of the ticket in the Penridge, right, is that um, – the, the sellers, Bob Sellers, who was the Republican head of the Penridge, Democrat, uh, Penridge Republicans, he was the only Republican that was on the Democratic ballot. He received like a fraction of the vote. Right. Um, and the rest of them got elected. Right. Which is good. You know, on the Republican side of the ballot. Right. I, I want to say everyone on the Democratic ballot was also cross-registered on the Republican ballot. Pretty sure that's true. Um, the important thing about that, potentially, is that they got a good chunk of the vote. They got a good chunk of the Republican vote. Right? So people who are not going to switch their parties to Democrat, but are Republicans, <clears throat> they got like, you know, 15% of the vote, some cases, maybe more, up towards a 20 for some which is really good, right? If, it's good only if 
right? That translates to voting behavior in the fall. Where And if what that means is that there were people who were Republicans who chose to vote for a Democrat, right? But the fact is, we don't know if that was the reason or not, <clears throat> right? I'm sure that some, some deep diving could figure some of that out, but why don't we know that? Well, for example, let's say there's a bunch of people who are independents, <clears throat> right? There are a bunch of people who are independents and they decided at just at this minute that they were going to, that there are independents who would say generally vote for democratic leaning people in the fall, right? In a general election, right? But they wanted to vote in the primary, right? And they decided that what they were going to do is that they were going to, they said, well, you, they wanted to make sure that some of the extreme candidates in the Republican Party were not going to get elected, right? And so what they did is they went into the, re, they registered as Republican for the primary and they voted for the Democratic candidates or maybe some of the moderate Republicans, maybe a mix of them, I don't know. Is that a possibility? It's a possibility. Is it significant? I have no idea, no way of knowing, right? Did people actually do that? Again, don't know. The same could be true if there were Democrats who registered as Republicans for the purposes of the primary in order to make sure that <clears throat> some of the most extreme candidates were not elected, right? Did that happen? Again, don't know. Is it possible? Sure, anything's possible. But was it significant? Who knows, right? But that's what I mean, right? And I saw some, some stuff on Twitter and stuff on social media where people were assuming that the the votes that they saw on the Republican tickets for Democrats would translate into that support, more support for Democrats in the fall. And again, the big message here is we don't know that, right? And I think it's a dangerous assumption to make at this point. Dangerous, why? Because it could make us make say the broad left, right? So talk about Democrats and people who are frankly, parents should just give a crap about not letting their schools go to, you know, some kind of extremism. It could make people give a false sense of security that we're, that, 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 that we're gonna win, right? <clears throat> and I don't think we're there yet. So good news, yes, great. Um, but I think, you know, I guess I went into the primary uh, with the attitude of like, I know who I'm voting for, <laughs> right, damn straight. Um, but yeah, the big race is in the fall, right? It's like the primary was where people start getting their name out. We probably getting their campaigns out there. They start building up capacity, right? Kind of seeing like what kind of name recognition they, they can get, uh, where their basis of support are going to be, right? And then now onward to the fall, right? This is an opportunity to reassess, right? After the primary, and then kind of move forward, right? Um, so that's what we got. That's what we got. So I was really excited. I was, you know, again, I understand voter turnout was extraordinarily low. Um, I, I I was very happy to see um, 
this was not true when I first moved to Pittsburgh. I'm Pittsburgh, yeah. When I first moved to uh, the Penridge School District, right? When I used to go to vote, there used to be one guy, right? One guy, uh, a Democratic guy, who I'd see every election. He was always there. And it was just that one guy with some literature, right? Didn't matter if it was a primary. Didn't matter if it was just one guy, <laughs> right? And and sometimes, you know, I'd get I'd go there at your time when that one guy wasn't there. There was nobody there. I'd just walk right, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, right? This time around, nope. There were tables out. There were people there to talk to voters, right? They were there for information. They were answering questions. You know, you know, every once in a while, you kind of get a slow part. You kind of just you know walk out and just kind of look outside to see what was happening. Um, we had, we had last, last year, last year or the year before, I think it was last year, we had one issue where there was some like people arguing in the parking lot and stuff like, so I was just like to just keep an eye and make sure that things are okay. Um, and yep, there were tables right there by the door, right? They got there early. They set up early. They had literature. There were people, different people staffed throughout the day. And like, man, that felt so good. That shows, right? That shows that organizing building that shows like that for me was more encouraging than the what we saw with these kind of ballot kind of like analyses. The fact that there were people there all day long and they weren't the people that used to be there all the time before. There were younger people, there were a mix of people that came throughout the day, right? And they were actively talking to voters all day, which was awesome. So there we have it. Anyway, so then on Monday, just to remind everybody, uh, we're going to call it there for the day. Um, on Monday, uh, we're going to do a probably morning show. And um, we will be digging into um, school district. It might end up being in the afternoon, but I'll, I'll let you know over the weekend. Um, and we'll kind of looking more in some of the things at the at the school district level, um, some of the happenings there. I'm going to try to gather some um, some perspective on this. Um, and then there will not be an evening show on Monday evening, um, in part because um, I'm going to be producing one of the shows for uh, the Bucks County Beacon. Um, it was a kind of scheduling thing going on there. So um, do that. Uh, but I'll let Cyril and the Bucks County Beacon folks kind of make the announcement of who uh, who's going to be on that show. It's going to be a great one. I'll tell you that. Um, but that's enough for that. Anyways, I uh, wish you all an awesome weekend. Uh, it is uh, looks like we're going to get a little bit of rain tomorrow. We were supposed to have this big garage sale thing, and then they postponed it until next weekend. So not going to do that. But it's still supposed to be a pretty decent weekend. Get out there, hit the gardens, uh, go for long walks, right? Ride a bike. I don't know. Just sit outside and stare at the trees if you can. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but kind of soak it all in. I wish you a great weekend. Uh, congratulations to everybody and thank you to everybody who was out there working the polls um, this past week and who continues to build a campaign. I know there's some fundraising events that are coming up soon. Uh, I hope people are going to make their available opportunities. We're going to announce them on the show. Um, kind of, you know, probably on Monday, we'll start talking about some of that. Uh, again, as a reminder, if you have events coming up, right, if you have things like Kirsten did today, let me know. I, um, and we will announce them on the show. Um, best thing to do is uh, shoot me, uh, you can shoot me an email at ragingchicken at gmail.com. Uh, but you also go kind of, you know, DM me on Twitter. My DMs are open there. Um, feel free to kind of DM at RC Press and let me know. Give me the announcements. And uh, the more details I get before the show, the more I'll be able to do them. But you're always welcome to show up uh, when the show is live um, and kind of uh, plug your stuff. Um, you can throw links into the chat if it allows you to do that. I know some people are having some issues with that. Um, but I'd be happy to circulate information um, for uh, fundraisers and events that are coming up over the summer. So let me know. 
So this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, we will be back with you on Monday. And once again, I wish you an awesome weekend and, you know, more power to organizing, I guess. That's all I got to say. I'm going to have a good one. Go dig in the dirt. Have some fun. Relax. Get ready. See ya! I guess I'll fly away now